Hi, everybody. I want to welcome you back to our podcast, EI on the Fly, a podcast about all things early intervention. Emily and I are happy to be back to kind of move the discussion along and to be start thinking about how functional assessment um, ties into the initial IFSP development process. So let me introduce myself. I'm Dana Childress. I work in Virginia as an early intervention professional development consultant, and I am a member of our state's professional development team. So we do um, lots of resource development and some training around around early intervention topics that support our service providers in our state. Um, Emily, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's Emily Webb, and I am the training coordinator for the Early Intervention Training Center here in Massachusetts. And we at the training center focus a lot on professional development for EI providers. Great. Thanks, Emily. So Emily and I have a lot in common with what we do in our day jobs and our states had a lot in common with trying to dig into this big topic. So over our past episodes, we've um, kind of did a big picture overview of functional assessment. We've talked about components such as observation, asking meaningful questions to gather information from families, using active listening, and um, becoming aware of the biases that we may bring to the process and the effect they can have on functional assessment and really the that your interactions with families. So today we're going to, like I said before, keep that discussion moving by um, talking about functional assessment in a specific step, a specific part of the early intervention process, which is developing the initial IFSP. So to think about how functional assessment contributes to that process, I want you to imagine a scenario. So here goes. The service coordinator meets the family at the intake and completes all of the necessary documentation. Prior notice forms are signed, the AI process is explained, and the initial evaluation is scheduled. You are a service provider, and you meet the family for the first time at the initial evaluation. You have your assessment materials ready, and you launch into asking about items on your tool. You play with the child, eliciting tasks you need to check off your list. You figure out if the child qualifies um, and that he has a delay in several areas of development. Next, you have to write an individualized IFSP including outcomes, and determine services that will address his strengths, needs, and his family's priorities. So let's think about this scenario and what do you know at this point? What do you think, Emily? Well, all you really know is what you've observed. And my guess would be that it hasn't been that much time. I think the things that you were describing, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour and 15 minutes. Right. Um, you don't really know very much about the child and you don't know what is out of context. You know, you only know what you saw in that moment and you may not have a lot of information to tell you, did they do this other places? Is this typical? Is this atypical? Um, were they just doing it because you were there? Um, test skills don't really tell us a lot about daily life when gathering functional assessment information to put those skills into context. And I think that piece is huge. This is a conversation that my husband and I are always having with my daughter. You know, she's, she's, um, our EI provider described her as nuanced and that nuanced. is exactly how she is. Uh-huh. You know, you have to really observe her and you have to put her skills into context because she has a lot of tips and tricks that she uses to make it look like, all right, she she's processing it. She knows what she's doing. And then when you really stop it, you're like, oh, wait a minute. That's 
always the response she gives. Yeah, I think I love that description, nuanced, but like really, I mean, you got to really pay close attention to what she's doing and how she's doing it, which is really what we ought to be doing when we're conducting functional assessment. The surface level stuff often doesn't tell us what we need to know. Yeah. All right. So let's reimagine the scenario. So let's think about it this way instead of what you described. So we're at the intake. The service coordinator observes how the child moves about, how they communicate, how they use their body to play and interact with their parents or their siblings, as well as the environment. Um, You as the service coordinator are going to ask about what the child likes to do, what they don't like to do, what the parents would like for the child to be able to do. Um, You're going to learn about the family's priorities, their concerns, and then you're going to share this information with your other team members before the actual evaluation day. Do you see the difference there? I think there's a huge difference there. The second scenario is individualized, right? Or at least you're gathering a lot more individualized information. I think it also helps the service coordinator be a more active part of the process. Um, It helps the service coordinator go a lot deeper than the first scenario we described, right? Service provider and the rest of the service coordinator and the other service providers go a lot more deeper than just completing necessary paperwork, checking, you know, the child's abilities off on a tool. Um, And I think what you described reminds us that um, there's a lot more information to capture. And really, service coordinators can be a really valuable resource to help start that process and start gathering that information before we even get to the initial assessment or IFSP development. Yeah, I think one other like big thing that I noticed is, you know, here in Massachusetts, we're always talking about that early intervention is a family program. You know, the whole family is eligible and the whole family is going to get services. And I feel like the second scenario we're not just telling the family that we're showing them that by the questions that we're asking and the observations that we're doing. I think sometimes when we don't do functional assessment, we tell them that it's a family service, but when we focus just solely on the, what the child is doing or not doing in that moment, it kind of sends a message of like, well, I know you said it was a family service, but you're really just focused on Colette or whoever the child is, you know? Yeah. And I think we also say it's a family um, centered process, but if we only focus on what we see on our tools, we could be missing all of the information that really helps us figure out how that child functions in the context of his family, which is what matters. It doesn't really matter a lot what the child can do. I mean, it does, but not a lot if the child can perform these tasks during that 45 minute or hour assessment. That stuff is important for determining eligibility, but can he or she do them the rest of the week when it's really needed? And that's where gathering all this good information, that's where it helps you go deeper so that you're prepared to write that initial IFSP and it has some meaning for really what's important to that family and and to, you know, what's important to the family that they would like the child to be able to do to be successful. So let's continue with our scenario. Um, So during the evaluation, you and the other professionals on the team observe the child as he plays while warming up. So now we've moved from the intake, we're back at the assessment. You're going to engage him in completing test items in a playful way, paying attention to all areas of development and how they intersect as the child engages with you, tries out and completes tasks, moves about the room, etc. You and the others on the team are going to have a conversation with the parent while the child is playing. So all of this is kind of happening at once. You might ask open-ended questions to learn about how the child spends his day, how he gets his needs met, how he communicates with others, what he likes to do, and what he doesn't like to do. 
you're going to listen closely to this conversation and ask for more information when needed. That's that digging in deeper part. By observing, asking those meaningful questions and active listening, which are all components we've talked about so far in our series, you're going to gather information that allows you to check items off on your tool, but you're also gathering other information that helps you put the child's development in the context of his family's life. So you're going to use both sets of information to help you write the IFSP. The information that you get from your assessment tool, checking off, you know, to figure out where the child is um, developmentally, but you're also getting that more functional information for how does the scout the child's abilities, maybe his strengths and areas that are a struggle, how do they impact everyday life? So that's some pretty important stuff. So let's talk about the difference between that and the scenario we've talked about before. What do you see as the difference, Emily? I think what you just described really helps put the development in the context of where it's happening. It really pulls out what's unique about that child and family. And this is like so important when you are developing an individualized family service plan. You can't be individualized if you're not really sure about what's unique about that child and family. Great point. I think it, yeah, I think it helps you appreciate the context in which the child is learning and developing, which and we'll get into this um, in later episodes, but it really helps you with develop, uh, turning what the family says into an outcome on that IFSP. And it helps you understand what the child needs to be able to do in order to be successful in his everyday life. I have like an example of this. So um, my daughter, when she was a little bit younger, she couldn't go up the stairs. She could go up the stairs, but it would take her a long time. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, she might go up a stair and then sit down and turn around and give her core a break, or she might get distracted by, like, dog hair on the stairs or (laughs) whatever. She could go up, but it might take all day. And she was going to do it on her time, not necessarily when I said it's time to go up on the stairs. Mm -hmm. So the the BDI, the tool that we use here in the Massachusetts, is going to tell us that when you put her at the bottom of the stairs and place a toy four stairs up and tell her, now go up the stairs, you do it, she's not going to do it. What it doesn't tell you is, let's just say, a bath time. So I'm home alone with my four kids, and at that point I had a three-year-old, a four-year-old. She was... I don't know, somewhere one-ish, and I had a newborn, right? And so you think about like, okay, I'm standing in the kitchen cleaned up from dinner, and I say, all right, everybody, it's time to go upstairs. It's time to take a bath. And we go upstairs. She's not going to come, right? Right. So now at this point, what do I have to do? I have to find a safe place to put the baby, and I have a three- and a four-year-old, so they could definitely cry, climb in and out of his crib with him. I'm not really comfortable putting him on my bed, <laughs> so we got to figure out where are we going to put the baby. Right. Then i got to go all the way back down the stairs. I have a child downstairs alone that doesn't have a lot of a safety awareness, so i got to sort of figure out what did she get into, and then come down, get her, go all the way back up the stairs, and then get everybody into the tub. That is was super stressful. It sounds like it would be. And that's, that's the context you were talking about. That's the effect of her, uh, her struggle with being able to go up the steps, like, you know, in a pretty quick manner when you need her to go. Mm-hmm. So I think what you described there, that's all the information that we won't get unless we are asking those additional meaningful questions. And, you know, even if, 
you, your service provider had been able to watch her try to get up the steps. And even during that inter- interaction, ask, tell me about this. How does she do every day? How does she do, you know, during the day when, when the rest of the team members aren't there? Just opening the door for the parent like you to be able to share that struggle in a safe place. Gosh, that if we can help her be able to climb the stairs and the, and the goal is measured by when she can do it every evening at bath time, you know, to go upstairs with her siblings for bath time we would know it's met and that would really be meaningful if it makes life easier for you. Yeah. Now, something you mentioned when you were talking, you mentioned the BDI. And I know we've talked before about how our states have some differences in the tools they use and how functional assessment works during the um, assessment. Um, So in Virginia, we um, don't have one specific tool like the um, Battelle Developmental Inventory that we have to use, but we have tools that people typically lean towards, things like the ELAP or the HELP. And our folks are really encouraged to weave functional assessment in that discussion um, throughout that because our tool is not standardized and we don't have to, to administer it, you know, with a specific protocol, with a script or anything. Um, and that it works really well and it flows really nicely. And I think it becomes easier as service providers practice that thinking, sort of integrating their knowledge of developmental skills and what's on that tool with what it might look like in the context of the family's life. So how does that work with your assessment process? Because that leads right into that IFSP development. Well, first I have to tell you, I'm probably going to get a lot of emails from people in Massachusetts Uh-oh. being very jealous of Virginia <laughs> that you guys don't use a standardized tool. Hey, it's different <laughs> every state, but I hear you. It's I've used standardized tools before and there there's some great things and some challenges for sure. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, here in Massachusetts, what, what I say when I'm working with programs, and I think the message has been, is that your the Battelle should really inform your functional assessment. So you should be thinking about what are you learning on the Battelle and then sort of what, based on what you learned on the Battelle, what are additional questions that you want to ask? What are different ob- different observations that you want to make sure that you're intentional about doing? Um, what what was the quality of the child's ability to do those things on the Battelle? Did you notice throughout the whole Battelle they never used their left arm? All right, let's investigate that a little bit further. Yeah, that's a great example. So I think that's a um, maybe a, I don't know if deeper level is the right word, but uh, uh, definitely skills for the practitioners, the service providers to develop, to be able to think about development kind of from that multifaceted point of view, not just, yes, I can check plus or minus on the test because the child did it or didn't do it today, but looking at the why behind um, what happened. And I think we've talked about that looking, you know, what's the why behind the assessment, behind everything we're doing as we're working with families. It's kind of the, why does it matter? Why does it matter if she's, she can do those skills or she can't, she didn't use her left arm. Well, that's pretty important in the grand scheme of that context. So let's dig a little deeper. So when we think about gathering all of that good information, we're we're walking toward writing that meaningful IFSP. And so there are a couple of components of every IFSP where this information gets used and woven in. So let's we're going to talk about those. So let's start by talking about the assessment narrative portion of the IFSP. 
Now, different states might call it different things. Some places call it the assessment summary, the assessment report, um, whatever you call it, there should be this part of the IFSP that reflects all of the information that you've gathered, both how the child did on the test or the tool and what that means in the child's everyday life. So when you think about that, that's, that's another skill to develop. We don't, we're moving away from seeing a list of skills the child can do because that's, that's only so helpful, right? Um, taking that information and helping connect the dots between those assessment tasks and what they tell us about development, that really helps families understand the the purpose of assessment and, and gives them more useful and meaningful information. And it's important too, because the IFSP is the family's document. So let's think about an example. So when you're working on, when you're writing that assessment narrative, you could just write something like the child placed pegs in a bottle and imitated strokes with a crayon. So you can write these um, and, and add, so you could write that and that's pretty much pulling directly from the test. Or you can write these and add how this shows up when he's able to use his fingers and his eye-hand coordination to do things he sees other people doing. Um, you could take the, the placing the pegs in the bottle, imitating strokes and think what are the underlying skills that that child needed to do to be able to do that and how could those affect everyday life. Um, being able to use your fingers, being able to coordinate eye-hand coordination it's pretty important when a child's learning um, and certainly helps them get ready for writing later on. So you can help families connect those dots. Um, I think functional assessment really helps you explain the link between assessment and everyday life and helps the parent understand that the discrete skills on the evaluation tool aren't necessarily important enough that we need to teach the child those skills. They're really related to what the child's abilities are so that we can see what he can and can't do in everyday life. They're, they just inform us and help us gather information that leads to outcomes. Yeah, using functional assessment to help drive your assessment narrative makes that assessment narrative so much more meaningful to the family. And I think sometimes people struggle with that because definitely here in Massachusetts, there's a lot of people that might see that assessment narrative, maybe the school system, the neurologist, the pediatrician, the Head Start program. I mean, the the list goes on and on and on. But sometimes we have to just stop and remind ourselves that even though those other people see that assessment narrative, the, the main audience for that assessment narrative is the parent. And when you can really sort of talk about how the delays are impacting that child's everyday life within the context of their familiar people and their familiar places, I think it just really helps parents understand what you're talking about and looking at differently. Yeah, I think it's part of the, well, the family engagement process, but it's also part of that educational process to help families become be active participants in the whole process so that it's not happening to them because assessment really shouldn't just happen to them or to the child it should be a collaborative process and all that good information the family brings about everyday life is just as valuable as what we can observe when we play with the one inch cubes with the child during the assessment um, i think it also gets helps i hope helps families see that you know, bringing up the one inch cubes, it's like my least favorite item on tests. Um, but how many families I've run across over the years that went and bought little tiny blocks because my child couldn't do that on the assessment. And that seemed like that was really important that day. So I'm going to teach him to do that when really, or I think the opposite is true. Like I remember we did summer reading and it, 
instead of reading for my preschoolers, it was like activities. And there was one that was like played with blocks. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's two and a half and I've never gotten the blocks out. I'm the worst parent ever. I know. I know the stress. I think about my son. I don't think he stacked anything for his entire probably first three years. Like it just wasn't his thing. It wasn't a way he wanted to play. But I knew enough to watch that he had the eye-hand coordination and he had a controlled grasp and release and he could balance things and problem solve how they fit together. All those other things that stacking blocks informs us if we know to look beyond the, the task and look at the underlying skills. So it's important, I think, helping families see that and understand that can just help boost their ability to participate in the process and to even help them think about how they think about their child's development. And all of that relates to all of that great information we gather and that way of looking at development can also apply to the development of the outcomes in the IFSP. So let's talk about those. So outcome development, you know, all IFSPs require outcomes. Outcomes really must include a description of what the child will do, the context in which he will do it, and the criteria for measuring the child's success. The great thing about functional assessment is it helps you come up with all of this. And it's um, when you take the information you've gathered and translate it into functional outcomes, that avoids having outcomes that look the same from IFSP to IFSP. So I'm going to read to you an example Um, or kind of a scenario that's an example of probably what is a common situation in early intervention. So let's say that a child's 28 months old and referred due to a communication delay, which a lot of our kids, right, in early intervention are. So you could write a generic outcome that might sound like this. Let's say, Amanda will use 50 words to get our wants and needs met. So I could probably ask our listeners to raise your hand if you've ever written that outcome or seen that outcome, and I would be included in their hand raising. My hand is definitely raised. I know. And it's not something like (laughs) we need to guilt ourselves, but the truth is we've written it. It's an easy outcome to to write, but it probably applies to 75 to 80% of the kids who come through early intervention. It's not. I think it's also something, sorry. I think it's also something that a lot of parents tell us, like, I just want her to be able to get her needs met. Yes. What a great point. So that's their priority. I want her to be able to tell me when she's hurt or when she's hungry. That's the family's priority. And then we're going to take that good information and craft it into an individualized outcome. So when the child can meet her needs or tell you what she wants, what's that going to look like in this specific family? And that's that's how we make um, outcomes individualized and add context. Um, it. It's, it, and it's all about gathering that good that good functional information. When we've gathered it, we'll have the information, or at least we have a place to start with the initial IFSP. We can take that information to add context. And I th- often think if you ask families, you can they can help you get an idea of how to measure progress on the outcome. Because you, you've already gathered information about what the child likes to do and what the family would like her to be able to say. The family can also help you determine how will you know, when will you celebrate that she's met this outcome? What will that look like to you? It also gives you a better idea of what's really important to the family, what will be motivating for them, um, and and really help figure out how do they define success, which is your criteria and is often different than how a service provider may define it, which honestly, we might define it in the terms of what happens on our session, but our session is such a tiny amount of the visit, Let's, we can always think broader and use the good information we have. Yeah, let me give you an example from my IFSP. So I've you know, I've talked about her a lot on this podcast. And so 
my daughter Colette, when she was first referred, she was nine months old. She like had just sat up the week before they came to do the assessment. She was bearing no weight whatsoever on her legs. She had failure to thrive and neurological concerns. And so um, my team did a really nice job of pulling out some of this functional assessment information. Mm -hmm. And I remember the, so if you think about a child like that, you might say like, she needs to increase her core strength. Mm -hmm. And she absolutely did. I mean, if anybody looked at her, she had low muscle Mm -hmm. tone. And still to this day, she has terrible core strength, right? Right. Um, But my, so my concern was definitely gross motor, but my priority at the time, I really needed her to be able to stand to put her pajamas on. And if you think about the context again, I've already told you my life at that point was like a free for all. <laughs> um, I didn't have the baby at that point, but he was on his way. Yeah. Um, and so bedtime was just, it was really challenging. And I don't know what it is. It was like laying her down for those feety pajamas and then like pulling her back up and laying her back down and pulling her back up and laying her down to like get the arms in and get the zipper done. And all while, like I have the other two just running crazy. I was like, Oh my God, I'd be like sweating at bedtime. I I dreaded it every night. And so the outcome on my IFSP is that she would stand to put her pajamas on before bed. Wow. And when you think about it, some people might be like, well, how's EI going to help with that? Like I'm not coming at bedtime. And they they didn't come at bedtime and they didn't need to come at bedtime because the same things you would work on for a child that needed to increase core strength. I mean, we worked on crawling, we worked on pulling to stand, mm-hmm. we worked on, you know, weight bearing and weight shifting and all of those things. And it wasn't it was probably probably took her, I don't know, at least nine, if not eleven months to meet that outcome. Mm-hmm. But it was really important to us that she be able to do this. And when she finally was able to do it, it made a huge difference in the bedtime routine. I bet it did. And I, I love how your team wrote an outcome, you know, with you as I obviously an important part of that team, but it reflected how you would measure the progress. You'll know when she's met the met the goal when you can she'll stand at the bedtime routine and things are rosy. So you, I love the point you made that, it, that your team didn't have to, team members didn't have to come at bedtime. They were working on all of those skills that are necessary for Colette to get to the point where she can stand to get her PJs on at bedtime. So I think that is a beautiful example of how to take functional information and use it because otherwise you're right, that outcome about increasing core strength could have been on her plan, which could have been on a bunch of other kids' plans and might not have had as much, probably wouldn't have had as much meaning, right? As make my day easier and her be successful when she can stand up at bedtime. So let's, um, let's, let's wrap this outcome discussion up with another example then. So from the example I gave you before, where we're just talking about using 50 words to meet wants and needs, let's look at a different example where you can hear how the functional information could be woven in. So in this example, Bethany will use 50 words such as outside, book, baby, dog to tell her family what she wants to do after nap time and after dinner when she plays with her sister every day for a week. So that's a longer, a lot like more words, right? A little wordier outcome. But you have components in there that are unique to Bethany and her family. And even the word examples, outside, book, baby, dog, these would be words that you would have gathered from the family that could be important to Bethany. And then because of these are things they like to do. 
they have a dog, you know, there's a baby in the home or she loves her baby doll. She likes to go outside and play with her sister. So you'll pull in that information from the functional assessment you've gathered to give that meaning. And and honestly, you might've heard that outcome and think, well, that's not really how we write them in our program. But no matter how you write outcomes in your program, you want to use the functional assessment information you've gathered because that's the key to making them individualized. And what a better way to show families that you've really actively listened to what they say. That's a great point when they can see their words woven in. I think you're right. That does make the plan more theirs. So moving along then, so we've we've written the assessment information in the IFSP. We've written an outcome um, or maybe more than one outcome um, to, to help us figure out where we're going with this plan. And so after the outcomes are written, it's time to determine services. So functional assessment also helps you ensure that you have all the information you need to make a good decision about appropriate services. Um, and I think that's really why we would never talk about service delivery before the assessment, or we don't even talk about it before outcome development necessarily, right? We're going to find out what the child's needs are, what the strengths are, what the family wants to work on, and then figure out how can we support them in working towards their goals. So once you know what they need, yeah, once you know what they need, you can better match outcomes to who can help them the best. Go ahead, Emily. I was just thinking like, even an individualized outcome of, you know, someone standing to put their pajamas on at bedtime. We might have that, I don't know, on four or five IFSPs. Maybe it's appropriate. But what I might need in terms of support to help my child stand and put on her pajamas at bedtime, that might look very different in your house. Mm -hmm. I might need two, three, four people. You might need just one. Like, we don't know. We, We don't know. It all depends on where the child is, where the family is, you know, how far that child and family have to go. Yeah. And so without all of that information, without that information that really helps you know, really helps you think about how can we help this specific parent in this specific situation, you could be choosing services based solely on the child's percentage of delay or a diagnosed condition which we all know is not the best way to make it a service decision, right? Because if we were to do it that way, it takes the individual individuality right out of the IFSP. So we want to take that, gather all that good information and use that to make good decisions. So next, what we're going to do is we're going to move into talking about some challenges because we know that using functional assessment during the initial IFSP process is not always an easy thing to do or to learn. I think it gets easier as you practice it more. So um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges we've heard folks talk about. This, I think, is the most important part of this whole episode. I can hear the people in Massachusetts, and they say this to me all the time. Like, I, I go through... A lot of the same things we talked about, and then they go, okay, but this is really hard. You're making it sound really easy, but it's really hard. I'm like, you're right. It is really hard. It can be hard, but I hope that as people practice it and give themselves some time and some space to practice, it will get easier with time because it becomes part of your conversation. And I've heard people say that here in Virginia, and Often it's wonderful to discover that they get overwhelmed by what seems like a new process or a big process, but because it's really just part of good assessment, a lot of times I hear that people are already doing it or they're already doing components of it. They're already asking good questions. Maybe they could do more with the observation piece, but you know, it's part of that reflection process and investigating what your your own practice is because sometimes you're already doing some of it. 
Yeah, and I think it reminds me of things you've said before is it's like really a mindset mm-hmm. and not necessarily an activity. And when you shift your mindset, it just becomes easier. Yeah, and I think a lot of us would say there's no way that any assessment tool, once you really know development, there's no way any tool ever can tell you everything you need to know. So it's almost inherent in the process because we're curious. We know there's more we need to know. And this functional assessment helps us get there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pose you with some challenges and I'll be curious to hear your answer. Okay. So what I hear a lot from people is I don't have time to do functional assessment. Yeah, that's a hard one. I think that reflects the stress that sometimes we feel, especially when we're faced with what feels like a new process and we've already got so much to do and a little bit, a little amount of time to do it. Um, but what I would say, like I mentioned before, that functional assessment's really just good assessment. And it's like you said, it's a mindset you bring to the assessment. So, you know, if you're don't feeling like you don't have time this might be something that's a funny thing to suggest when somebody doesn't have time. But if you can take the time to observe others who feel skilled at use doing functional assessment, sign up, join one of their assessments, watch how they do it, borrow some of their tricks or their language, write down some good questions that they ask, um, and then reflect with them afterwards. Think about what, what did they do that you really liked? How did they learn to do that? And take time to reflect on what you're already doing. Look for similarities between what you observed and what you want to be able to do, and then plan for how you're going to develop those skills. So for instance, I know I'm a compulsive list maker, and so when I was doing assessment, there were oftentimes where I would take notes with my with my with me to the assessment of things I wanted to ask. So I didn't have to think about it all in the moment, but I might have known from the intake information or from whatever information I got ahead of time. I want to dig into this or, you know, they you know, this mom said something about bedtime is hard or bath time is hard, so I don't want to forget to dig into that and ask a couple of more questions there. So, you know, look at other people who are doing it, reflect on your own skills and give yourself some room to learn because that's part of early intervention we're always learning and growing i love 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 the suggestion of like just take time to go and watch other people i've never thought of that Mm -hmm. i've never thought of that and like what a great suggestion yeah it's sometimes it's hard like i said i don't have time to do functional assessments so i'm gonna say so go watch a two-hour assessment squeeze that into your schedule but It's so awesome to be able to not be the one doing the assessment and just be able to really sit back and watch. Um, I know I've learned a lot of things just watching the other service providers and the other therapists, even techniques about, you know, what you're actually doing with the child all the way to just the notes they take or or how they ask questions. So uh, if you're open to that, there's, you know, take advantage of the expertise around you. All right. So what would you say to the people who say, but we have to use a real test like the Battelle or the ELAP? I think I would say that, yes, you do, but you can do both. Um, That functional assessment is just really adding a level of depth to the administration of your test. Now, depending on the type of test you're using, you may have to plan ahead or think about how, where it fits in your um, process to gather that functional assessment information. But I think a good, strong assessment uses both and and they can be done. They can be used skillfully. And what would you say to the people who say, but I'm not always sure how you explain like the connection between chest items and the child's abilities? Yeah, that's a skill that I feel like it took me a long time to 
develop. When I think about my first assessments, I stuck pretty close to the tool, you know, reported back that the child could do these items on the lap and not these items. And before it really clicked for me that the items don't matter in the grand scheme of the child's development. So I had to ask other people. I remember blocking time, sitting down um, and thinking about what do the test items demonstrate to me as an assessor about this child's development. So if he can stack the three one-inch cubes and he's probably never played with blocks this tiny before, what does that tell me about his development? So I had to sit down and think about all the abilities a child has to have to do that test item successfully. Now, honestly, I didn't break down every single item on the ELAP or the help, but I really had to dedicate some time to thinking that through to break it down. And then that helped me connect the abilities that I, the thing, the tasks I saw with the underlying abilities which were things infants and toddlers need to do as they develop. And and so it really required reading. It required taking some time. Um, and it can be a great activity for uh, staff to do together. You know, take take different items off of the test people use, break them down, and then share that with each other. You could do that as a staff meeting activity or something so that you're supporting each other and helping to see the connections between the test item and the child's abilities and struggles and then you can translate that in this in the individual situation for the family. So I don't know if that helps, but that idea of blocking some time to really think about it is important because a lot of our tools don't give us that information in their you know in the administration manual. Yeah, there is a um, so the AEPS has a curriculum book, and so oh, if people good. are wondering about this, I think that that is one of when I was a new provider, it was probably the most helpful thing that I had. So the AEPS does a nice job of sort of showing how one skill leads to another and another and another. And they do, the curriculum book really helps explain this, but then they also break down each test item and give you information on how you can teach it within the context of everyday routine. So it'll say like in the car or at the grocery store or, um, it just lists different things and can give you information as a provider on how you might go about teaching the family to teach it. Oh, I forgot about that. I haven't used the AEPS with families, but I've always heard so many good things about it for planning and learning. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And what would you say to people who say, but isn't functional assessment more appropriate during ongoing services? I've definitely heard that one before. And I almost think it's a more, people feel like it's more of a natural fit. Oh, I already do that when I'm on my visits and I'm asking families for updates and asking how things are gone. And we talk about challenges. So I think, as we said before, the idea of doing functional assessment is really, it's just one long conversation. It's that mindset or the perspective. And we we're going to start it with our earliest contacts with families. We're going to start gathering that good, rich information and then continue doing it on an ongoing basis throughout service delivery. And that's what we're going to talk about next in our, um, in our next podcast in this series. So um, I think we're at the point now where we're almost ready to start wrapping things up. We're hoping that the discussion today has helped you um, think about connections between the functional, between functional assessment and how you write that initial IFSP. And I think, uh, um, I don't know, for me, at least a big takeaway from our discussion today is the importance of, approaching your initial IFSP from a functional assessment perspective in order to make sure that the plan is individualized and the families are really actively involved. 
So next time we're going to continue our conversation by delving into that, um, the issue we just talked about, which is the using functional assessment during ongoing service delivery. We'll talk about how to use it to monitor progress and how to use it to develop intervention strategies with families during your visits. So we hope you'll join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.